1: Welcome, 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 and if you want to run with the game changers, oh, I promise you're in the right place and you know you are. The buzz today, I've picked some lyrics from a Brad Paisley tune. No, I am not going to sing, but here's the opening of the song. Every day is a revolution. Welcome to the future. Aha, that sets the stage. Now let's talk about today's topic. We have an upside The fourth industrial revolution, smart factories, connected machines, and industrial Internet of Things, IIoT, offer limitless possibilities for, get this list, collaborative robotics. What? They're going to talk to each other, work with each other. Digital twins, we have to learn more about that. And myriad smart use cases, not just use cases, but smart ones. What's at the heart of it all? The industrial machinery and components industry. Fondly known as the I-M-N-C. But wait a minute. It sounds wonderful, fabulous, promising, exciting. There's a downside. Information overload and inadequate cybersecurity are barriers to capitalizing on the opportunity. What is the opportunity, Bonnie? I can hear you're asking. How much are we really talking about? How about 15 trillion dollars that's trillion with a t in the near term well that sounds like an upside but the downside is the infrastructure may not be ready for it why should you care our listeners all over the world This impacts your business, it may impact your career, the company you work for, your career path, as well as your personal life and your standard of living. I think we can agree there is a lot at stake. First up on our wonderful panel today, and by the way, I've invited back three panelists who joined me in April, on April 12th, on our Digital Industries Changing the Game Radio series. So this is part two of our topic, Digital Manufacturing, Powering the Fourth Industrial Revolution. First up today, I'm very pleased to welcome back Sean Malloy. He is the Industry Solution Principal for, I just mentioned IMNC, Industrial Machinery and Components Automotive and Mill Products Industries at Intelligence Inc. And Sean has sent me a quote from Harvey S. Firestone. Those of you saying, gee, Firestone sounds familiar. Think about your car. Uh, Harvey Firestone, who lived from 1868 to 1938, was an American businessman, the founder of the Firestone Tire and Rubber Company, uh-huh. and one of the first global makers of automobile tires. I will tell you if you've heard his name all over and over and over again. In 1926, he published a book called Men and Rubber, The Story of Business, co-written with Samuel Crowther, and the main library at Princeton University is named Firestone Library, one of the largest in the world named after him. He was inducted in the Automotive Hall of Fame. Let me read the quote now. Thought, not money, is the real business capital. Sean Malloy, welcome back. How have you been, Sean? Very good, honey. I'm glad to be here today. Glad to have you. Welcome back. This is part two of our topic. So tell me, are you, a, are you a user of Firestone Tires? We want to go. want to get personal. I'm not going to ask you what you're driving right now or when you're done with the show. But uh, how come you picked a quote for Harvey Firestone on our topic about Industrial Internet of Things, Fourth Industrial Revolution? Talk to me, Sean.
2: So, so back in 1926, Mr. Firestone put together his, his book. It was basically a how to succeed in business book. And, and this book is as relevant as it was then. As, as relevant as it was then, it is more as relevant or more relevant today. It's, it's very on target for our discussions. Um, if we look at the investments of our thoughts to create a vision for the future, uh, you know this is what will generate the new markets and new income opportunities. So it's really thought, not money, that's the real business capital for Internet of Things in the industry 4.0.
1: Very, very interesting. So his book is still relevant. I'm, I'm very pleased that you said that. You know, we're often thinking, uh, Sean, what's on the bestseller list? What's hot? What's what's in the PDF list? What's hot selling on Amazon? Who just pushed 5,000, 5 million of their friends to buy the book and say, wow, I have a bestseller. It's on Amazon. But now we're talking about a book that's been around for a long, long time. What do you think Harvey Firestone would say right now, Sean Malloy, if he knew you were quoting him on an Internet Based radio show, what would he say? He
2: would he would be thrilled at the opportunities of of being able to take thoughts and ideas and communicate them globally instantly, and and that's what that's what that book was about. And is is how to take all these thoughts and ideas and get them out to the masses and use that as the collateral and the capital that drives the economy and, and, and brings meaningful uh, uh, new tools into the marketplace.
1: Thank you, Sean. Very well articulated, and it's a pleasure to have you back. Welcome again. And now let's move to our second Returning panelist on this topic, it's Jason Kaufman, C-O-F-F-M-A-N, from Deloitte Consulting, and of course, Jason, you know we have a shout out to Carla Neal and Amanda Bush and so many people at Deloitte. And Sean, uh, Jason is a manufacturing principal there. He has quoted somebody who just left us a week ago, very famously, Muhammad Ali. And the quote is, "A man who has no imagination has no wings." But anybody who doesn't remember Muhammad Muhammad Ali was born Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr. He lived from 1942 to 2016. He was an American Olympic and professional boxer, widely regarded as one of the most significant and most celebrated sports figures of the entire 20th century. Controversial, polarizing inside and outside of the ring. And there's so much more I could tell you, but he's the only three-time lineal world heavyweight champion, winning the title in 1964, 1974, and 1978. And he also was stripped of... Of the title, when he decided his religious beliefs, when he converted, uh, his religious beliefs prevented him from being drafted to serve in the Vietnam War. And we'll just leave that political discussion for another show. So, again, the quote is a man who has no imagination, has no wings. Jason Kaufman, how are you?
3: Good, Bonnie. Thanks for having us back.
1: We are delighted. I'm delighted. So tell me, Muhammad Ali just left us last week. He certainly uh, paid the price for his celebrated career and all those knockouts and knocking in the ring, And uh, but he went out, I believe, with dignity. So how does this quote relate to our topic today? We're talking Fourth Industrial Revolution, and you're talking about imagination and wings. So help me out here, Jason.
3: Sure. No, no, part of it is right, honoring his recent death, but also tying back to, you know, how do you power the industrial revolution, right, as we move into this fourth wave? Uh, and I think the quote challenges all to see the possibilities uh, where others only see problems. I mean, IoT and, and the topics we'll, we'll get into greater detail aren't easy to kind of uh, understand where, where to start, where to begin, how to drive value. To my shareholders, to my company. Uh, but I think we need to start with that imagination. And it, it's needed before we can really do great things in this space.
1: Interesting. And Jason, I, I think if you ask people to put a couple words together in the same sentence, the last thing they would put in next to uh, industrial and manufacturing would be wings and imagination. Do you agree with that?
3: Uh, no fair. It, it may be on the, the softer side of a, of a very <laughs> engineering, analytic Uh, concrete world. But uh, I I think we're all, you know, challenging ourselves. And again, going back to that fourth industrial revolution, I I think that's part of the secret sauce that's going to get us to uh, to that goal.
1: Thank you. And by the way, anybody who doesn't know more about Muhammad Ali, he was nicknamed the greatest. And we'll just leave it at that. Look him up if you're a stranger to uh, boxing and somebody as celebrated as he was in RIP Muhammad Ali. Thank you. And David Parrish up next, our Senior Global Marketing Director for the Industrial Machinery and Components Industry. There's our im c again for SAP. And David has quoted, this time Yogi Berra. Yogi Berra, who left us last year, was an American professional baseball catcher, manager, and coach who played 19 seasons in Major League Baseball from 46 to 63 and 65, all but the last for the U.S. New York Yankees, of course, U.S. Uh, Let me just say here, he was one of only five players to win the American League Most Valuable Player Award. And David, just indulge me here, but I don't know if you know that uh, in 1942, the St. Louis Cardinals passed over Yogi Berra in favor of Joe Garagiola, who was his boyfriend, Boyhood best friend, they thought that Garagiola was a superior prospect, but nobody realized Branch Ricky was about to leave St. Louis to take over management of the Brooklyn Dodgers, and he was planning to hire planning to hire Yogi Berra when he got to Brooklyn, except somebody else made a better offer. It was the Cardinals, and they took Yogi Berra away. Did you know all that, David Parrish?
4: I did not, and that is is—it's uh, very intriguing. It seems like- Very
1: intriguing. So now let me read the quote, which is a, another classic here. Yogi Berra said, it was impossible to get a conversation going. Everybody was talking too much. I think that's who we are today. David Parrish, welcome back. How have you been?
4: I've been great, and thanks for having me, Bonnie, and thanks for Delighted. Talk
1: to me. Are you a big Yogi Berra fan? Uh, I'm
4: just a big baseball fan in general, and okay. I'm absolutely a fan of his quotes, that's for
1: sure. Okay, so how does that relate to our topic today, our serious topic, and here we've got Yogi Berra with his, I'm not even sure what the word was, oh, malapropisms, that's what he's called, pithy and paradoxical quotes. It ain't over till it's over. Talk to me, David.
4: Yeah, well, I think you you mentioned it earlier already, Bonnie. It's uh, It's for me and for others, that just struggle with information overload. We hear a lot of uh, talk about this uh, industrial Internet of Things. We hear a lot of talk about uh, the fourth industrial revolution. But I'd like shows like this where we can get into a little bit more of the nitty-gritty and the actual details of, of, and have a real conversation.
1: Real conversation. There you go. What was that phrase from Midnight Cowboy? That song, everybody's talking at me. I can't hear a word they're saying. Well, we can hear everything you're saying here. Thank you, David, and welcome back. And now, of course, we want to catch up with our three panelists, find out where they're calling from and what they're either drinking right now, if it's fabulous. If not, what are you planning to drink later? Let's start with Sean Malloy. Where art thou and what's in your cup today, Sean?
2: I'm calling out of Dallas, Texas, and in my cup today is chicory coffee.
1: What does it taste like?
2: So, chicory coffee is a very strong, dark coffee that you kind of take the edge off with chicory, and it makes it kind of a chocolatey flavor inside of it.
1: Ooh, I like chocolatey. Very interesting. I'm going to have to try that. Is there a special brand?
2: Well, my favorite is, well, I lived in Louisiana, on and off, for for 12 years. And where I got turned on the, the chicory coffee was by going down to New Orleans, going to Café Du Monde, getting the beignets and the chicory coffee from there. That's the best in the world.
1: Ah, uh, Beignets, a French word for donuts, the really good stuff. Yeah, forget about your cholesterol and your sugar issues, right? Just do it. I agree. I agree. Time to have a little bit of fun. Thank you very much. And now let's go to Jason. Where are you calling from, Jason Kaufman? Uh, And are you anywhere near? You can wave to our friends at Deloitte, or do we have to do that worldwide?
3: Uh, I'm sitting in Detroit, Michigan, in our, in our head office here uh, in the Renaissance Center. So have a nice view out across the city of Detroit, but not sure if I can see all of our friends across Deloitte.
1: Okay. Uh, and what are you drinking today?
3: Uh, later today, I'm hoping to have a, a Moscow Mule, uh, but but leveraging a local uh, vodka, Valentine's. Uh, it's a local Detroit distillery that has been winning a lot of world uh, vodka awards, and their White Blossom is a uh, elderflower infused vodka, so it adds a nice twist to uh, the Moscow Mule.
1: Oh, nice! Remind me, Moscow Mule. What's the recipe for that?
3: Uh, so it's ginger beer. So you find your favorite flavor of ginger beer uh, with with the vodka and then at least a half a lime kind of squeezed in. So it's really refreshing for the summertime.
1: Sounds delicious. Is it warm there today, by the way? We're coming kind of cool weather here in New York. A little bit iffy. No,
3: we've got the same. It, it was hot and rainy uh, for the last week and now we drop down to maybe we'll hit 70 today, uh, but probably late, high 60s at, at the highest.
1: Yeah, I think that's about it. By the way, anybody who was tracking Tropical Storm Bonnie two weeks ago, she never really did any damage. So there, I told her to be nice and behave and be good to our namesake. David Parrish, where are you? What are you drinking today?
4: Thanks, Bonnie. I am in Denver, Colorado, and I'm drinking coffee. But uh, the chicory reference, I, I missed the coffee in New Orleans for sure. I visited there many times, and it's delicious. But just drinking plain old coffee, but later today, Uh, Similar to Jason, um, here in Denver, Colorado, and Colorado in general, we like our local spirits and local beers, and we have over 250 craft breweries, I think, in the state of Colorado, and hopefully my wife and I will have a chance to take a little bike ride later this afternoon and have a local beer or a local cider afterwards.
1: Ooh, it sounds like a plan. And I guess you all know, you know, I really wanted a decaf latte before I came on the radio. And I said to myself, Bonnie, no, there's always a little smidge of caffeine. And you know, you're just going to go whoop. And you can't do that on the radio. You have to stay in control. So I had a glass of milk instead. But I'm drinking cool clear water now in a cool clear cup with a green straw. Not a not a pink straw because we've been having a little bit of sunshine. So I left the pink straw for a rainy day. And I will have that latte afterwards. We are off the air. You're talking to, we are talking to Sean Malloy at iTelligence, Jason Kaufman at Deloitte, David Parrish at SAP. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. This is Coffee Break with Game Changers. And if you're keeping track, I think we're up to episode number 234. It's been almost five years since this series debuted on October 5th, 2011. I remember it well. We do about 50 live shows a year. We're very happy to be here. And today we are revisiting a topic we started on our Digital Industries Changing the Game Radio series a couple of weeks ago in April. The topic is Digital Manufacturing. Powering the fourth industrial revolution. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. You can count on it. We will be back. Justin, out.
0: The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio. Voice America Business Network. You're enjoying Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. You can send an email to graham at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet your questions and comments during and after the show at Twitter, hashtag r a d i o Now let's get back to Coffee Break with Game Changers.
1: Let's get back. We're talking about the fourth industrial revolution. You thought there were only three? Is that what your history book really says? Well, think again. You have to listen up. We're here live on Coffee Break with Game Changers Radio. By the way, we're tweeting at hashtag SAPRADIO. I I see some tweets here from our good friend Karen Geraldo tweeting at K-H-E-R-A-L-D-O 24. Thank you, Karen, for always listening and tweeting. We had a tweet from Jason P. Kaufman at Deloitte a little while ago. Uh, Deloitte SAP is tweeting. We're having a party here. IoT Minded is tweeting. Whoever they are, thank you very much. And I've tweeted about 20 times so far. So come in and join the party. The water is fine. We're ready for our roundtable in earnest, as my mom likes to say. We're going to start off with Sean Malloy at ITelligence. And I'm looking here my notes. Sean, here's a very provocative statement you send me. I'll read it, and then we'll have you expand it, and then we will invite your co-panelists to chime in. You say leaders in the Industry 4.0. Revolution, have learned that IoT, the Internet of Things, transforms ordinary commodity items into high-value products. What does this mean? Why is it so important? Consumers are readily paying a premium price for these now. Sean, very provocative. Why don't you expand it, and then we will invite Jason and David to chime in.
2: Sounds good. So commodity items are really the low-hanging fruit when it comes to the Internet of Things. Uh, take, take an example like your, your car radio. For years, uh, uh, the, main, the auto manufacturers sold cars, car radios. It was just the standard component in the car. But then somebody came along and made the investment in the IoT side of things with a Bluetooth radio and started putting those in cars. Now, consumers started going to purchase those cars because it gave them a value, an incentive that the other car manufacturers didn't have. So the first ones in were able to charge a premium price for the new vehicles that had that new technology. Now, as, as more car manufacturers jumped onto the bandwagon, put IoT into the cars at, as a standard offering, the, the last car company, if you think about it, that started putting those radios in still had to make similar investments to the first one in, except now the, the value... And, and the profit margins have gotten lower because, as, you know, as a project product matures in the marketplace, the margin's lower, uh, but yet they make that same investment. So be, it becomes a penalty for them uh, as a laggard in getting into the market. And that's, that's where, where our manufacturers today need to look around at all of these commodity items and make those business decisions about which ones they want to invest in because, and, and get those to the market first because they're the ones who are going to reap those rewards.
1: Interesting. Is this breaking news for them, Sean? Are they just finding it out by tuning in today, or do you think they're aware already?
2: I I, I think there's a mix. There's a mix in the marketplace, because people traditionally have not looked at commodity items in in a way that says, how do I differentiate mine and get a higher value for it? It was more of, how do I sell more of these products as opposed to how do I differentiate this product and
3: get a premium for it.
1: Interesting. Very interesting. Let's ask Jason Kaufman at Deloitte for his POV. Jason, join us, please.
3: Sure. No, I think Sean's asking a good question, right? That that everybody's trying to dig into, and and in my words would be: it boils down to where will this value come from, and, and how do manufacturers and others want to participate in this space? Um, a, a lot of the value that we've seen so far, are use cases that people are pushing on, been more on the called the back office, right? How do I manage risk? How do I have a better visibility in my supply chain or proactive maintenance on on, on my factory floor? Um, I think the examples and use cases that, that Sean's talking about is how do you get more uh, customer facing and starting to push on that side of the value chain, um, which which could turn into a much you know larger value proposition for for most companies.
1: Thank you, David Parish. Thoughts, please. Yeah,
4: um, I mean I think Jason and, and Sean both said a lot there. Um, I think where the value will be coming from. As Jason mentioned, it is shifting, and I like the, the consumer examples, you know, around mm-hmm. automobiles and Uber and things of that nature. Um, I think we're just at the cusp of it, right? Um, it is a revolution, and we've, we've seen this sort of change in the past, but I don't think we've seen it this rapidly when, we come, when it comes to the Internet, the Internet of Things.
1: And do you think this is a surprise? Is anybody sitting there in manufacturing and industry and saying, what's that thing they're talking about, IOT? What is this about commodity items? I don't know. What the, is there anybody left who, who is not on board or at least doesn't have a ticket to climb on that train, David?
4: I think um, most manufacturers today are definitely aware of it. There's more than a few that are, are well down the path and, and very sophisticated because they've been doing some of these things for a while now, and this, the technology has improved those processes. But, uh, you know, overall, I would say uh, no, no one's surprised about it happening. People are surprised about how fast it's happening. At least I am. Ah,
1: okay. Uh, well, let's get a feedback from Sean and Jason. Do you agree with D- David? Are you surprised? Sean? So, so this is Sean. I,
2: you know, the, the, the most surprising piece of this to me, like, like I was mentioning earlier, is that uh, manufacturers are focusing still on producing a lot of the same product and just trying to do more of those as fast mm-hmm. as they can, whereas IoT affords them the opportunity to innovate that product and, and, and get greater margin. And, and that's the surprising thing is that not all manufacturers are thinking this way. They're not thinking that their common, ordinary product can be extraordinary, at least for a time. Take, take a look at the, the Nest uh, thermostat. Mm-hmm. Who, who would have thought that a standard household thermostat would sell for around $200 because it's been enabled with Internet of Things?
1: That's right. Very, very interesting. Uh, Jason, join us on this one. Any thoughts?
3: Yeah, no. I, I think there's a lot of the traditional manufacturers are now, whether they're setting up separate divisions or some some level of strategy within their four walls of how to deal with this disruption. Right? They're 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 being challenged, I think, by a lot of startups that have this more uh, software service based mindset versus just product centric. And I think they are in a position to be able to capitalize based on having the market share, having that footprint, but they need to think differently. So part of the challenge is, you know, how do they disrupt themselves in order to leverage their core business, but then move into all this new capability that could really differentiate themselves?
1: Thank you. And I have one more question for the panel before I move into some thoughts about the IOT from Jason Kaufman's notes. Question is, social media, does it come into the mix? A a manufacturer who's set in their ways, who has stayed, SDAID, who's done things the same way, the wheel ain't broke, don't fix it, blah, blah, blah. And one day somebody, a friend, a neighbor, a a wife, a husband, a, a, a young person on the staff, a relative says, hey, Bob. I just saw something on Facebook. Your competitor down the block or across the country just came out with this new version of XYZ product. Do you think maybe you want to compete on that newer playing field? Does anybody think that social media, to my question, is influencing or at least opening the eyes of the people who did not think they had to change? Jason, Sean, David, anybody?
4: This is Dave. I could I could give this one a shot because i
1: Dave, talk just a closely. little bit louder for us. Just a little sure. bit louder. Please. Um, mm-hmm. I've been Thanks. looking at the
4: social media aspect for industrial manufacturers for probably the last, I would say, eight years. Okay. And eight years ago, it was a very uh, quiet conversation. Uh, got a lot of blank stares. And today, um, with the customers, the manufacturers I interact with on a regular basis, um, most of them are very social savvy now. And whether it's a tool manufacturer or, who, who, you know, a machinery manufacturer, they have people dedicated to monitoring not only the sentiments of their users but of their suppliers and, and customers. So it's, uh, I, I think we're, we've started to turn the corner when it comes to social media and its impact for uh, industrial manufacturing.
1: Thank you. Anybody else want to chime in on that? Uh, Sean or Jason, any observations about social media and manufacturers and the teams who have been deployed or, or on the ground looking and listening and saying, wow, we should do something about that? Anything from Intelligence or Deloitte? Yeah, this is, this is
2: Sean. So, social media with the Internet of Things is, is very, uh, allows us to take this unstructured data. That's sitting out there and it's a, it's a gold mine of data and, and mine that data back to where we can talk about what are the end customers, the end users really thinking about our products, how are they experiencing our products? Because when they report on social media, they're typically telling what they feel and what their activities are and what's happening. and so my, getting these insights back Mm -hmm. Uh, are key to us understanding what are the things that we can do to enhance our products to make that end-user experience so much better.
1: Thank you very much. Jason, anything?
3: I think it's one of the key life cycles. Uh, The customer life cycle is a, a key component. So the more they share or the more insights you have by you know, being able to monitor your, your products as they're being used uh, and having this, you know, unstructured feedback loop as well. I think it's a mm-hmm. c- critical piece that you need to monitor and pay attention to, whether it's an unhappy customer, whether yep. it's new use cases of how they're using it and being able to address that quickly and, and improve your product uh, that much quicker.
1: Thank you very much for all three of you indulging my question. Jason Kaufman, I'm looking at your notes, and you sent me a couple of interesting things about the IoT. First of all, I want to ask you before I read this, Jason, are we distinguishing right now between IoT Internet of Things and IIoT Industrial Internet of Things? You want to give us a level set on the difference, please, and then I'll go into your talking points.
3: Yeah, I I think it's, you know, the Internet of Things is the broader you know, picture I believe of of how everything is connected, whether it's from our phones to uh, Nest, as Sean mentioned, and and all the other devices that that, you know, have Bluetooth or Wi-Fi or, or some level of cellular connectivity. Uh, the industrial side, I think, is, is really what are those enterprise applications? Um, how do I impact my facility? How do I improve my products? How do I engage with my, cons- my customers? And, and more the, you know, the business application of that. Um, but it also starts ble- bleeding over from just business to business, also to the business to customer.
1: Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Now, let me read one of your notes here. Very interesting. Let's talk about the human side of IoT. I don't know how many people really think about it that way, but we're going to. Jason Kaufman sent me the following. IoT has a role to play In helping companies create more sustained value through moving from a one time transaction focus to a continuous relationship focus with customers, with suppliers, with workers, and with assets. Jason, that sounds like a lot of populations to deal with. Why don't you take us through that cycle, please?
3: Yeah, I think we've been touching on this a little bit from a standpoint of, you know, a lot of manufacturers, you know, the touch points were around the one time transaction of selling Mm -hmm. my good to that individual and maybe I had some pull up transactions if it was uh, uh, an, an item that required some level of maintenance, repair, or service uh, and having those insights. Now with IoT, you know you have the ability to stay connected. We touched on social but also having that device provide information. Uh, I think we admired in part one, you know, GE shift to power by the hour for their jet engines and the masses amounts of data that that are provided back to them and the service that they're providing to their customers versus just selling the engine uh, and keeping that you know uh, maintained ready to go and, and, and providing the ultimate service of moving goods, packages, and people to where they need to be. So I think this continuous evolution of being able to have some level of transparency into the usage and ongoing operations you know allows a, a much fuller view of how that product can improve you know an enterprise or a business or a consumer's uh, use of that, of that device.
1: Thank you very much. David Parrish, let's get your $0.02 or $10 worth on this one. What do you think?
4: Um, I really liked what uh, Jason was saying about driving more sustained business value. And, you know, you mentioned it also with the large, you know, quote-unquote, ecosystems that these industrial manufacturers have to – we all actually have to um, accommodate, right? There is customers. There are suppliers. There are employees and are assets, and you mentioned that you know $15 trillion number when it comes mm-hmm. to uh, the opportunity of these things and connecting them. Um, I, it, to me, it really doesn't matter how big or how small uh, a manufacturer is. These are very real um, situations that we're all going to have to address. I mean, innovation is absolutely the key. And like I mentioned earlier, the speed of the change is so rapid that Rapid innovation is now becoming, you know, table stakes to, to remain competitive and remain a global leader in industrial manufacturing, which might not have been the case, say, 20, 30 years ago if you just had a solid product that worked, right? You need more than that now.
1: That's right. You do need a lot more than that. Sean Malloy, ITelligence, join us. Thoughts, please?
2: Yeah. I, I, yes, I believe that Jason's pointing out that one of the main focuses uh, for the use of IoT is, is really in strengthening relationships. Um, for example, if, you, if we take an ordinary laundry basket and add a simple IoT level sensor on it, and when we take that and connect it to a dry cleaner, we have a concierge So right in our home, one who arranges for the dry cleaner to pick up clothes and take care of that for me. It, it, it establishes that deeper relationship with, between customer and service provider and manufacturer.
1: Thank you very much. Let me go back to Jason. Any thoughts on what David and Sean just added? And I want to move on to one more point here from your notes uh, in a minute. But what do you think? Anything you want to add? Any examples?
3: Um, I guess I guess the biggest example, and, and this is more of a generic one, um, if we look at the past five years, I, I think mm-hmm. most companies are looking at, at, Less around the, the sexy aspects of what we've shared, right? The, 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 the higher value customer connection. I, th- I think those use cases are still being explored. Um, Most manufacturers, I think, today have been focused on that efficiency expense reduction and trying to attack, you know, the utilization reduction of, of risks associated with, you know, their manufacturing plant floor. But I think the challenge that we're putting out there is how do you have those insights? So if you look at the supply base that are providing, you know, whether it's the valves, the pipes, you know, the machines within that customer's uh, four walls, how do they start monitoring and providing services that could be, you know, a value add to them. So I, I think the dynamic of that whole ecosystem needs to evolve one step further.
1: Okay, we talked about revolution. Now we're adding the term evolution, I believe. Uh, One more comment from you. I'm looking at your notes here all the way down at the bottom of what you sent me, and you say transparency can be a double-edged sword. Why don't you give us the ways, W-A-Z-E example, and then I'll, I'll move on to something from David Parrish's notes. Jason?
3: Sure. No, you know, just example. You know, I'll talk about ways in a second. But just within that manufacturing world, if I have transparency into the the plant floor of how they're operating, what they're doing, and if I can monitor my product that's that's supporting that manufacturing process and understanding their usage. I don't know if the electrician or, or machine repair will be, you know, tweeting or using social media to talk about how great this valve is. But if I have the ability to kind of monitor it, uh, it could provide a lot of insights. But with that transparency, it could be a double dead sword of, well, you know, how are they really running? Does that company want their suppliers to understand what's going on? And, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of trust there. Uh, one example that we use, um, I don't know if people use the navigation. Uh, app ways. Uh, I live and die by it, uh, particularly if I'm traveling outside of Detroit and trying to figure out how to get from point A to point B. But it gives us a better drive experience. It allows you to take different routes than just the normal route you you take by default because it can recognize that there's an accident and, and kind of crowdsource how all traffic patterns are happening. However, with that transparency, insurance companies can also see that, oh, you're traveling five miles, seven miles over the speed limit whenever you can or mo- most times. Um, and with that driving data, could they you know, start charging different rates based on actual use? So it's the balancing act of what kind of value am I getting out of that and, and how is it going to be used and making sure it's very clear on the intent of that data if I anticipate or if I uh, elect to participate in that, in that uh, ecosystem of, of the give and take of the data.
1: Interesting. Thank you. Before I move on to David Parrish's comments here, uh, David or Sean, any any examples you want to add to the wonderful ways example that Jason shared with us? Either one of you have something, a favorite use case you want to talk about? Maybe not. Okay. I'm going to move on. Just thought maybe. David Parrish, you brought to my attention that at the end of May, we're in early June now, Industry Week, Published an article on the Industrial Internet of Things talking about smart use cases. Let me just read one here. You say sensor-enabled pipes that detect leaks enabling smart water. Many industrial pump manufacturers have already started selling smart water pumps. David, what's your favorite use case? You want to give us a couple more? Um, Yeah, I don't know if I
4: have a favorite, but that one, uh, you know, I I deal with quite a few large manufacturers and small and medium-sized manufacturers also. And the water pump guys are really on the forefront of, of this kind of uh, connectivity, if you will. Um, we've also talked about um, predictive maintenance on the operations side. I think Jason mentioned platform, operation, platform operations and, and analytics. Um, some of the other ones, um, just a little more personal and less, um, less industrial mm-hmm. focused, but... Um, the building I work at here in Denver for SAP is LEED certified, which means it's you know environmentally uh, sound when it or as sound as can be when it comes to uh, the environment. So things like if there's nobody in the office, the lights go out or the temperature on the thermostat changes. I know uh, Sean mentioned the 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 next uh, thermostat the Nest thermostat from Google. Mm-hmm. Um, those types of things, I think. Um, over time will we'll affect all of us, right? And at the industrial scale, I think it's, uh, it's very dramatic. Everything from smart grids and utilities to uh, we also already mentioned the Waze app J- Jason did on you know, smart commuting, knowing where traffic patterns are, knowing where parking spaces are, all those things from a personal standpoint, I think, are, are quite large. And, and an, industrial, an industrial standpoint, just exponential how, how how this will affect business moving forward.
1: Thank you. Sean, anything you want to add to that? I'm going to pick up some more from David's notes in a minute, but I just want to uh, go back around the table. Anybody want to add anything about smart use cases? Do you have any, uh, any of your own favorites, Sean or Jason?
2: Sure. Uh, a couple of use cases that I'll, that I'll put out there are, um, take, for example, industrial robots. Uh, industrial robots have, Traditionally, been uh, locked in cages uh, because they, you know, literally, if you invade their space, they're not going to stop. They are going to harm you. And and now the the use case has been let's let's free the robot, <laughs> let's pull them out of the cage, and let's put them on the line with the users. And and to do that, then they've added these these sensors that sense as you get close to the robot, it slows down. And, and the government has gotten involved and. In Determined even what a slowdown speed should be, and they've regulated that. And then uh, also, when you get a closer proximity, the robot will completely stop. And so, you know, these are that, that is a great use case of of IoT helping us in in manufacturing on an everyday basis.
1: Thank you, Jason. Anything from you?
3: Uh, just playing off a of, uh, Sean's example. I mean, as all that volume of data. You know, increases. You know, from the factory floor, from that robot watching how things behave. And, and, and there's a learning component too. Uh, just watching some of the vehicles. You know, Tesla rolled out Autopilot overnight. Scroll through micro font, uh, twelve pages on their screen. Hit OK, and now you're enabled with Autopilot. Um, and and you know, all the YouTube videos of watching people drive that way. But it got smarter. I mean, all that data, all the millions of miles that were driven. You know, with that vehicle, they fine tuned it instead of it trying to tend to pull off to the um, off an off ramp as it's driving on the highway, following the lines of the road. You know, overnight it was corrected. So, so there's also the component of with all these robots, how can you know the suppliers of those solutions learn from all that data and in, in, in all the different use cases. So, I think the the exponential growth of having access to that data can only you know, further drive the improvement and really get us through that industrial revolution.
1: Thank you. And now I'm going to go back to something from Part 1 that remains in David Parrish's notes. David, you know where I'm going. We're talking about the dark side. I alluded to it in my opening today. Let me just read a little from your your notes from Part 1 that will have you run with it, and I know Sean and Jason will want to chime in. You say, the dark side of this exciting growth and opportunity, high-value industrial installations and manufacturing facilities are prime targets for digital attacks and sabotage. And then you added, David, Trust with your suppliers, manufacturers, and customers is the ultimate cyber currency. So since we met a couple months ago on this topic, David, has anything changed on the dark side? Do you still feel that way in terms of cyber attacks? And is enough being done?
4: Um, Yeah, I think it's a very, very real um, threat at at this time. Um, Sean mentioned earlier about uh, strengthening relationships, and that's how some of this connectivity can do that. Um, and I think that's paramount, because I do think trust, like innovation and imagination and, and these various things, are are extremely important. And from a cybersecurity standpoint, I think most companies that I've worked with um, have this um, as top of mind, right? I was uh, fortunate enough to do some business in Germany uh, back in April, and when Sean mentioned Free the Robot, uh, it totally resonated because I was in a a manufacturing company that does controls and automation, and they have the real robots next to the real live human beings. And you can tell if, you know, if there weren't severe controls and severe security around these things, how people's safety could be compromised uh, very easily. Um, So I know for this particular manufacturer where I saw the freed robot, if you will, cybersecurity was was definitely you know top priority to make making sure the safety of the of the plant
1: How long do you think we're going to be able to reference it as the dark side? Do you think there's a a light at the end of the tunnel in terms of, I talked in the beginning about the inadequacy of protections against cybersecurity attacks, uh, cyber attacks, David, is anything going to change? We aren't quite at our predictions round yet for the show, but is is there a light at the end of the tunnel or will we ever get ahead of the bad kids? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm typically
4: a, a half glass full, really full kind of guy, um, but for this one, it reminds me of kind of uh, when people talk about cheating in professional sports, right, that whether they're taking performance enhancing drugs or I heard something about a, a bicyclist had a small electric motor in their, <laughs> in their bike. I think the, the nefarious folks just seem to be ahead of the curve a lot of the times, and it's a constant struggle to keep up. Yeah. I think We're doing a great job, and I I think many companies are doing what needs to be done to keep their data and their customers and their people safe and secure. However, I don't think the threat's going to disappear anytime soon.
1: And I think I can back that up with an article in Reuters on their home page on Reuters.com, dated January 15th of this year, 2016. The title was, U.S. Sees Jump in Cyber Attacks on Critical Manufacturers, U.S. Department of Homeland Security investigations of cyber attacks on the nation's critical manufacturing sector nearly doubled, and the year ended September 30th. Uh, the team is called Industrial Control Systems Cybersecurity Emergency Response Team, or ICS-CERT. They said in a report it investigated 97 incidents of critical manufacturing manufacturers during its most recent fiscal year. Category includes, you will not be surprised, gentlemen, makers of vehicles and other types of transportation equipment, as well as metals, machinery, and electrical equipment producers. It responded altogether to a total of 295 cyber incidents, up 20% from the previous fiscal year. Let's get some comments. David, any surprise on this before I ask Sean and Jason? Uh,
4: No. I mean, as expected, really. I mean, I think it's it's very real, and it'll continue to be real.
1: Thank you very much, or uh, not thank you very much, because this is not what we really want to know about, but I guess we have to. Sean Malloy, what's your reaction to this?
2: Well, we, have, we have lots of smart people on both sides of the equation, unfortunately. Lots of smart people trying to keep us secure, and lots of smart people trying to exploit uh, uh, any way that they can. So yeah, really, as, as more devices are connected to the Internet, the, the ability to pre- protect those devices... Uh, in the short term, seems to be maybe decreasing. But a a lot of the future of the cybersecurity market is really tied to this industrial revolution. And so both are going to mature together, and the gaps are going to be filled. And I think uh, at at the end of the day, we're going to be able to transact in a a fairly safe world and uh, uh, be very successful with Internet of Things.
1: Wow, I like that optimism a lot. Let's see if Jason Kaufman at Deloitte agrees. Jason?
3: Yeah, no, and whenever you, as we admired, right, when you're pushing on these new ways of being connected, I mean, you also expose yourself um, in in, in not so so good ways. But I think the real challenge is to, within your manufacturing group or within your product development group, there's going to be new talent, new skills required to think this way instead of building a device that, you know, it was fairly, you know, uh, self-contained and not, the threat was maybe it could get stolen uh, and just taken from you. Um, With with these types of connectivity, you know, could you lose data? Could you lose a customer's data? How how do you make sure you you protect yourself? So, But that needs to be enabled at that product development and manufacturing side. So how do you deal with the software? How do you deal with software uh, cybersecurity in order to put, you know all all the controls in place and improve your maturity in this space uh, will be a, a ever growing um, part, part of any any um, manufacturer's group or organization in order to uh, handle these kind of things.
1: Thank you very much, David. Anything you want to else you want to say about this jump in cyber attacks and where you think yeah, it's going? Just cause, to yeah,
4: expand Go a little bit on what both um, Jason and Sean said around this. I think. Um, You know, the idea that there's good, smart people on both sides of the fence I think is absolutely spot on. And I was reading an article recently um, that had a study that said last year, 2015, um, over $800 U.S. dollars was uh, invested in cybersecurity products. And the growth of that industry, they're predicting an 18.8% growth. So by in four years from now, it's going to be a two billion with a B um, market around cybersecurity products. So I think you know people realize the importance of this. People realize there's an opportunity to make some money to be good at it, and uh, also just to protect uh, you know the greater good, if you will. So
1: thank yeah. you. Let's, let's go back to the lighter side, get away from the darker side for a minute. We've got about a minute and a half before we go formally to our prediction segment. But, David, drones, Walmart, six to nine months away. What's going to happen in six to nine months, and how are drones going to help them do it better? Thoughts?
4: Yeah, I thought this was interesting. Um, a lot of people here, at least in the U.S., have heard about um, Amazon is, is trying to get approval Um, to use drones for direct delivery to customers for, um, you know, their products for smaller, I think it was under five pounds type of parcels, um, which is interesting. And I think that will happen at some point. It hasn't happened yet. But what was more interesting to me is Walmart kind of taking this to the industrial level instead of direct delivery um, to the customers, more looking at, What is the physical, the actual real-time situation within their distribution centers? So what does the inventory look like? Um, So they have drones that are actually functioning today, and the article I read said taking 30 images per second and feeding that information directly back to their systems um, to make real-time business decisions on do we need to stock more, do we need to stock less, what's the situation? And the end game here would be obviously better delivery to their end customers to to compete with the with the Amazons of the world.
1: Interesting. Interesting. So those are drones we will not see, at least not in our neighborhood, peeking into our bedroom windows or our 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 home computer labs. Home computer labs, where hopefully we're all doing, we're on the good guy side of the equation. Let me circle back. We are now officially in our crystal ball predictions round. Mr. Sean Malloy at iTelligence. Why don't you tell me, you know I still love the year 2020. I probably always will, even after we're in 2021, I'll still be talking because it just sounds so cool. But it's almost not even in the future anymore. It's coming so Quickly, Sean, what will change about this topic if we met again at some point in the future? Powering the fourth industrial revolution, will we be in the fifth industrial revolution anytime soon? Sean Malloy, Malloy prediction, 60 seconds, go.
2: Prediction is 2020 will still be in the fourth. Uh, thoughts of, of how to make more products effective or how to use them in new capacities or how to transform commodities of today into the IoT sensations of tomorrow, that will all be realized. And and. They will have become the catalyst for business and income tomorrow. Um, You know, it's really, going back to my original quote, it's the thought that that will fuel uh, more machine-to-machine connections. Uh, Also, uh, I'm going to throw out there that with the information overload today and the proliferation of IoT by 2020, there will be a new real important field that's that's an old important field, and that's going to be statistics. And so we're going to need the statisticians more than ever to model the data, sift through the millions of data points, and tell us which ones are relevant uh, and, and are going to make an impact in the business market today.
1: Did you really say statistics? Did you really say statisticians? Seriously?
2: Yes, I did, because when you're a data overload, <laughs> you don't know what is important. You can't, you've got so much noise in all the data, you need somebody who can tell you what data is significant.
1: Did you just create a new job opening for something called Statistician? Will it be like Data Scientist? Will it be Statistics Scientist? Or is there a sexier title, Sean? Just quickly tell me. This is sounding very interesting.
2: I I believe so, but I don't know what that title is.
1: All right. We'll have to come back on Part 3 and figure it out. We're going to do a whole show on the statistician in the Industrial Revolution, the 4th or the 5th. Jason Kaufman, Deloitte, 60 seconds. Please give me your predictions.
3: Yeah, no, in 2020, I think we will continue to evolve those use cases in the customer and product lifecycle beyond just the facility lifecycle that we kind of mentioned on. Um, You know, those advanced analytics, I think one of the terms or or jobs I'm seeing being created is data scientists, right? So you have this, you know, data scientists that have all the skill sets to go through advanced analytics that can look at, you know, connected machines, all the active sensing, to really start shaping customer behaviors, tailor products and services, and maybe even you know start pushing you know timely use of information to those customers, whether it's you know running their shop floor uh, or or you know a consumer end device.
1: Thank you, David. Power 60 seconds, and then I have some breaking news for all of you. You're going to get a kick out of it. David, predictions. Go ahead. Um,
4: yeah, I, lo- I love the term data scientist. And I mm-hmm. honestly, in my career, had never heard that term until probably three or four years ago. And now it seems to be mentioned on a regular basis. And, you know, to both what Jason and Sean said regarding the information overload, um, it's more than just technology, right? You need some, some hard and fast science to be able to make sense out of this incredible amount of information we're now able to get relatively inexpensively. But, you know, you'll garbage in, garbage out That's right. principle, right? You need to really look at what's important for your business and how you can leverage this new technology. And I think the data scientists are, are right there at the, you know, the edge of the envelope, if you will, around here. But in four years' time, I think what we're going to see is um, – some of, these, some of these markets are going to be make or break, right? Do people really want smart thermostats? Who knows? But I think That's
1: you know, right. we'll
4: see what happens with Nest over the last next few years. Um, That's right. A's is, I think, already a real thing, and it's happening every single day. So we know that model successful. I think more and more use cases are just going to present themselves in the next few years.
1: Same with smart refrigerators. Who knows how many times we reach for that chocolate milk, but that's another show. Here's the breaking news to my three panelists. Uh, Huffington Post Business Blog, February 8, 2016, by Star Chakravati. Uh, this article first appeared in his column in the Indian Express, and the title is The Next Big Thing, A Fifth. Industrial Revolution. And he's talking about Davos is over, and he's quoting the doyen of Davos, Klaus Schwab. And somebody on one of my shows, either this week or next week, is is actually quoting Klaus Schwab on the show. Uh, in a recent piece in Foreign Affairs, explained the fourth industrial revolution is one that is building on the third, the digital re- revolution that's been occurring since the middle of the last century, and blah, 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 an infection po- inflection point. So everybody take a look. The next best thing, a fifth Industrial Revolution, the next big thing. Maybe we'll have to do a show on that. Sean Malloy, intelligence such a pleasure to speak with you again. Jason Kaufman at Deloitte, always wonderful. David Parrish, come back anytime. You have to stop staring at me from that picture, David. We need a new picture of you. I get unnerved every time I put your picture in my notes. Everybody have a great day. We've been talking about digital manufacturing powering the fourth industrial revolution, part two. And I think we're going to have to escalate that to part five. Three and the fifth revolution very, very soon. Shout out to everybody who tweeted at hashtag SAP Radio. I did about 25 or 30 tweets, so go retweet or edit them or take a look and see if anything resonates with you. Shout out to Justin and the Business Channel team. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, and here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. Is it a smart seatbelt? I hope so one of these days. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Have a great one. Bye-bye.